been working our way through Galatians for the last, uh, well, for the previous five weeks. And we've come to the end of the book. And uh, this last sermon here, we're trying to pull together some of the things uh, that Kathy's just read for us. The question has really been, uh, as we've worked our way through, what exactly does the true Christian look like? How do you know what's right and true? How do you know where it's actually to be found? And uh, so I thought I might give you uh, one option. One option is uh, the true Christian is someone who's doing something that's completely old and out of date. They're following a rule book that's musty and crusty and uh, they're really just a bunch of killjoys. Possible. Uh, Maybe the true Christian uh, looks a little bit like this. I I think within reason he's probably amongst the most famous Christians in the world. Uh, Does everyone know who he is? Uh, This is Ned Flanders. Uh, Darren, you're suggesting this looks like me. Is that what you're saying? Okay, thank you, mate. I was trying to work out what the hand signals were. That's very good. Okay. I did leave my slightly thicker glasses at home, but I can do that next week. I've got a jacket, not a jumper. Anyway, look, um, I'm going to suggest to you that Ned Flanders isn't the picture of true Christianity. Um, The Bible actually has something. It's been saying, Matthew unpacked it a little bit for us last week. The Bible's actually been saying the, the true Christian is the one who walks in step with the Spirit. The one who walks in step with the Spirit. Hence hence my picture up there of footsteps. Someone who is living in the way that God has created for them in the right path, empowered and supported by God's Holy Spirit living in them. Uh, And it doesn't matter what your haircut is then, what your taste in jumpers is. It depends how in line your heart is with the things that God has called us to do. And they're people who have said that what they were doing previously was no good. They've confessed their sins and are trusting in God. That's the true Christian. So what does this walking in the Spirit look like? Well, again, see last week's sermon, uh, but we'll unpack it just a little bit here just to remind you. What does walking in the Spirit look like? For some of us, we might think, well, someone who's really holy, a true Christian, would probably be someone who'd go and live on a mountain in a little shack on their own. Uh, They'd be a hermit, a holy saint, somebody who takes themselves out of society and goes and sits on a hill and is close to God. Of course, you can be close to God on the ground as well as up a mountain, but nonetheless, uh, it seems mountains seem to be favoured. So so here we have a picture. Is this the vision of true Christianity? If you're really devoted to God, you take time out from all the other boring things we have to do and you just seek after God. Well, the answer to that is is no. It, It doesn't have to be like that. It's not an opt-out of the world in order to be a Christian. I think being a Christian looks a lot more like this. Uh, We're on a big inflatable raft, packed in with other people who've just been saved from the ocean. The true Christian life is not one lived in isolation to escape from all the people in the world that are stopping me being as lovely as I need to be. It's actually to walk out what it looks like to follow Jesus be led by the Spirit, in the midst of community, with other people around you. Uh, Although at some times you can feel maybe when you come home from work, you might be thinking, well, if only I could go to my little mountain retreat, I'd be a lot more godly. Uh, In fact, the Christian life is lived in the midst of community. It's lived in the midst of community. Now, I was thinking a little bit about this, because community has some upsides, but also has some downsides. And in our life at the moment... I think there are two questions that we would ask. Um, The first is, uh, 
when I'm really busy, it's one thing for me to be in Christian community, but I think to myself, well, wh- why should I care about you? I'm, doing ha- I'm working hard enough to hold my own end up. Just me trying to follow Jesus is hard enough work, and you want me to actually be thinking about other people, about you. That's pretty tough. Why, why would I do that? I think the second question goes the other way, which is, why are you bothering about me? You know, the, 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 the wisdom of our world at the moment seems to be saying, if it's all right for you, I should just let you do whatever it is. Is that kind of right? As long as you're not hurting anyone, go for gold. And it's kind of a bit like, uh, don't bother me, don't have anything to say to me, don't care for me. It's, it's like, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, let me be. And I want to just think for a second, if we are sitting on a big life raft together, uh, does that hold? Well, certainly today we would say, of course it holds about morality. That's, that's a strong signal from our world, isn't it? Whatever's good for you, it's fine. Don't ask me about it, and I won't ask you about what you're doing. Everyone, hands off. So at one level, that's the message from our world at the moment. The second one is, well, what if we're on the boat and you're sick? Well, so long as you don't sneeze on me, I don't really mind that you're sick. I don't have to worry about that. You can be as sick as you want. But once we take it another step and we say, what if we're all packed on a boat and someone has a contagious disease? No, whatever's good for you, please keep sitting next to me. Please rub me with your infected arm while you sit next to me. Anyway, you, you get the point. All of a sudden, it becomes a community matter, doesn't it? Actually, your sickness matters to all of us. In fact, for me to ignore you is firstly unloving, and secondly, is to jeopardize everyone else. Your individual sickness, in this case, can actually impact everyone else. And so we should all care. We should care because you're important. And we should care because what you bring actually impacts the rest of the community as well. I want us to have a look at uh, this passage here, Galatians uh, chapter 6. So if you can open it up, it's on page 1171. And uh, it says here that we should care. That we should care. Have a look with me at uh, verse 1 and verse 2. Brothers and sisters... If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should gently restore that person. But watch yourselves or you may be tempted. Verse 2, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. There's actually something beautiful about caring for others. And if I see you in a sickness of sin, I should restore you gently. I should help you. Uh, the reason I've got the picture of the nets back there, that the, the word for restore is, is, is also a word used, used elsewhere for mending nets, putting back together, fixing the hole, making it whole again. We should care, it says here, we should carry each other's burdens and we should restore gently the one who's caught in a sin. No, notice, it's, it's really easy just to skip past it. In, in verse 1 there, it opens with brothers and sisters if someone is caught in a sin. The thing that we're just assuming is, oh, you take for granted what the Bible is saying here. The church is supposed to be a family. Would I care if my brother or sister was caught in a sin? Well, I should do, because it's not for their good 
and it's not for the good of our community. And so there's assumed family, and in family we would care, and the encouragement from Scripture here is that we would gently restore, gently restore the one who is trapped in sin. Incidentally, that's nice, isn't it? If I, if I am trapped in sin, I see don't want someone to come and wrap me across the knuckles, do I? And so here's the scripture telling me wonderfully, gently, gently restore the one who is your brother or sister caught in a sin. But when it's, when it's saying to do this restoring, it says be careful of two dangers, two dangers that can happen if you're doing the restoring. The first danger uh, we can see here in Galatians 6, and that uh, chapter 1, and that, uh, sorry, verse 1, and uh, that second half there. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So you're helping someone out who's struggling with a particular sin, and as you hear it, you think, oh, I haven't thought of doing that. Maybe I could do that. What it's saying here is watch yourself as you involve yourself in the lives of others, as you care for them, as you see their sin, Watch yourself or you may be tempted. Secondly, there's a second temptation uh, in verses 2 to 5. It says, carry each other's burdens and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. It's really interesting, isn't it? I see there's actually a beautiful thing about helping people who are struggling with sin. That's great. But what you can end up doing is coming up with some sort of condescension, which is, oh, oh, people like you would struggle with this. I'm someone who's obviously passed on from such lower struggles, and now I can help you. Now, what pride have we immediately fallen victim to there? Oh, what pride? Gave you an answer there, didn't I? What sin have we immediately fallen victim to there? Sorry, pride. Yes, pride is the problem. We're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm now in a position where I can help someone else who's sinning. If you're doing it to make yourself feel better, woe to you. You're actually adding a sin to their sin. So we need to watch out as we do this wonderful restoration work that we don't be tempted to follow them into sin and that we're not tempted to, to, uh, to think of ourselves more highly than we ought in pride. We've actually got uh, one of our values. If you look over here, we've got a little sign uh, down the floor over there, and it's got what we are talking about as Christians we're trying to become at this church. We talk about living the message of new life, and we talk about four values, being faithful, being adventurous, compassionate, and enduring. They're the characteristics that we hope will embody the people who are coming here at new life. Under, uh, under enduring, we talk about building people who follow Jesus for their whole life. And we hope for Mason, as he started today, we hope that Mason will run that race all the way to the end. For, one of, for, for each other, this set of questions under here tell us how we can help each other in community on that big inflatable raft called the church, how we can help one another get to the end. So there's a question for us. Where are you weak and in danger of falling? Do you know yourself where you're in danger? The second question says, who knows you well enough to ask this question? I.e., where are you weak and are in danger of falling? Does anyone know you well enough to ask you that question? Would you let anyone ask you that question? 
And then thirdly, who are you strengthening to run this race to the end? The idea being that we should be gently restoring one another, that we should be encouraging one another to endure to the end. It's a challenging area, isn't it? And the implication is you can't do it on your own. We want to be building a church where we will encourage you to run the race to win the prize. True Christianity doesn't involve green jumpers and pink shirts. It's not Ned Flanders land. True Christianity involves community, a community of mutual love and accountability. But there's more here to this picture. Uh, Think with me about this. Did anyone have a piggy bank when they were growing up? An actual piggy bank? Did anyone have one that you, you could put it in and you couldn't get it out? Because they always have those little sneaky little things at the bottom, don't they? In case you regret putting it in, you can get it out again. The, the, the idea is, I can't withdraw any more from my piggy bank than I put in, can I? So my kids often, uh, you know, we're not really good with um, pocket money. But, uh, but when they get to the shops, they get, have I got enough to afford this? And the idea is, well, you can have a look in your little box, and if it doesn't add up to how much this is worth, guess what? You guys are catching on. You should come parent with us. Anyway, so the idea is you can't afford it if you don't have that money in the box. If you didn't put it in, you can't take it out. I think it's the same with our marriages. We'll want lots from our marriages. Guess what? You can't take out from your marriage what you haven't invested in. I want a brilliant, awesome, sustainable marriage. Yeah, but I I don't want to do any of that supporting or encouraging. I'd actually just like to receive it. How likely do you think that's going to be? You can't take out from it more than you put into it. What we sow in, we will reap out. How about our fitness? Anyone like to be fit? Is, uh, is anyone investing in this at the moment? Past tense. <laughs> is anyone investing? I see that hand. Thank you, Al. Yes, Al was here riding with me uh, 6.30 on Saturday morning. Good man. Uh, If you want to feel fit, but you make no investment, guess how fit you're going to be? (laughs) You're You're not going to be fit. You can't withdraw any more good health than you're willing to invest yourself. How about this one? Church. I want church to be full of great relationships. I want church to be a place where I'm encouraged and built up. I wish more people would invite me around to someone's house. And I would say to you, church, that's brilliant. I share this longing with you. How likely are we to be the church if we're all looking to receive that from everyone else? What I'm saying here is something very, very simple. We won't get out more than we put in. Have a look with me at this next, uh, this next question here. Can you cheat this? Is there a way to get something out that you didn't put in? There isn't. There isn't a way to cheat this rule. Have a look with me uh, at the next little section here in Galatians chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 7 to 8. It says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. It's a funny thing, at the back of the church here, 
uh, we've got a big uh, empty uh, dirt patch there. Uh, some many weeks ago, they sowed something there. Has anyone seen any of the results of that? It's now just starting to come up. Actual grass is growing out the back there. What was sown is starting to come up. What it's saying here is you won't reap anything other than what you sow. And you can sow in two ways in your life. You can sow to the flesh or you can sow to the spirit. There'll be two outcomes to this. What what does it mean to sow to the flesh? The the other passage uh, that was read for us by Jeff from Philippians talks about people whose God is their stomach. Now, I don't imagine that that means at home they have a little silver model of a stomach and that they bow down and worship in front of it. It, it, It's not that there's an idol of a stomach or anything. What it's saying is that my tastes, my appetites, my desires are the thing that I endlessly feed. They're my first priority. They're the thing that I seek first in my life, that I sacrifice my money, my time, my talents to serve, my appetites and affections. And what the Bible's saying here is if you sow to the flesh, and, and the Bible doesn't pull its punches, does it? It says you will reap destruction. The outcome of all that investment will be that at the end of your life, there'll be nothing to show. You'll be left with ashes. And the living God will say, you have not sought me. You will leave me forever. Destruction is what lies ahead for the people who sow to the flesh. There's another way of sowing. You can sow to the Spirit. Sowing to the Spirit reaps something far more exciting. Sowing to the Spirit, it says here, will reap eternal life. What will it mean to sow to the Spirit? If you look just back up a little bit before uh, in chapter 5, Matt mentioned this last week. Uh, Have a look at chapter 5, verse 22, just above where we are at the moment. On page 171, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does it mean to sow to the Spirit? I live for, I invest in, I seek first the Lord God by choosing love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. I invest in those things out of love for God. And the outcome of that, the outcome of all of that is eternal life. A life that will last beyond the grave. Now, if we were doing an infomercial there, I could say, hey, I've got a great offer for you today. You can pick between two things. You can sow to the flesh and you'll reap destruction. Or alternatively, you can sow to the Spirit and you'll reap eternal life. Now, if we're watching it on TV, which would you choose? Uh, I think I'd choose the one that's eternal life, wouldn't you? Everyone can make that decision. It makes sense. I'd prefer to live forever than be destroyed. Here's the thing. Holiness doesn't just happen. Holiness doesn't just happen. No one just became holy by making no effort at all. And this is what Matt spoke about last week. We'll be doing work in the direction that God is leading us. 
Holiness doesn't just happen. Has anyone found this? It's a bit like if you leave that uh, block of uh, land just at the back there with nothing on it. Guess what does grow, even though we don't sow it? Sorry, someone tell me. But I didn't sow any weeds. They just happen, don't they? Guys, today I want to tell you, if you want to see a harvest of holiness and you make no effort whatsoever, guess what sort of crop you'll reap? It'll be weeds. It'll be a godless life. Holiness doesn't just happen. Secondly, I want to say to you, there'll be no surprise crops. You don't plant potatoes and reap strawberries. Now, this is immediately evident to you, isn't it? We don't plant wheat and reap watermelon. It just doesn't happen. What you sow in, it will grow up and it will bear fruit. There's no surprise crops. So what we've been spending our lives loving, what we've made the most of, that we will reap. It's a life with consequences. A life with consequences. And at one level that sounds brilliant, but then... Sure, it's winter, isn't it? But by which we mean, hey, it's getting pretty hard. It's the end of school term. I'm pretty tired. You can't expect me to be running on this whole holiness thing the whole time. I get a bit tired. Is anyone here feeling a bit tired? What, what about when it comes to this mob here? Our beautiful kids here at New Life. If you don't know, we, we actually ask everyone who's a partner here at New Life to help us lead the kids. And so they're on a number of weeks each term. Now, I reckon that looks like a pretty great job, doesn't it? It's a, it's a great job. Have a read with me, verses 9 to 10 here. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You know what it says here? Don't become weary in doing good. Don't get worn out doing good and go, that's it, I'm done. I need a holiday from doing good. Here's why. It says the harvest will be worth it. Can I just paint you a picture for a second? I want you to think about our kids. One day, one day, you and I, God willing, will stand in glory on a world renewed, everything made new. Those who are trusted in Jesus will be standing there with us for all eternity. The Lord Jesus will be with us. Standing next to us, imagine one of those children, no longer as a child, but as a peer, someone who will live forever in God's presence. And they say to you, I am so thankful for the time that you spent teaching me. I'm here today enjoying forever because of the effort you put in. It'll be worth it. Do not grow weary in doing good, for you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. I love this as a conclusion to this thought. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Has anyone heard this before? Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. I want you to think about what it is that you are sowing into your lives, in your free time, in your actions, with your money, 
with the things that your hearts are fixed on, what are we going to reap given where we sow? We talk about being adventurous, and down the bottom here, it uh, has this question here. It says, how is the kingdom shaping your time, talents, and treasure? We want to encourage you to be thinking, are we sowing in accord with what we want to reap? Are we investing our time in our week, our talents, the skills God has given us, our treasure, the money we have, for things that will last forever? True Christianity involves consequences. And most of them are glorious. Where does our confidence flow from? Where does our confidence flow from? It's, it's a key issue uh, in, this, uh, in this passage here, and we're going to finish with this. Uh, often you might think, hey, my confidence comes from the fact that I've been at church four out of five times in the last five weeks. That's pretty good. I've been turning up. I keep my spot on the roster. I'm doing pretty well. We can look to the externals to find confidence. And the scripture here encourages us to do nothing of the, short, of the sort. Have a look with me at verses 12 to 14. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Well, if you're sitting here for the first time and you're wondering, oh my goodness, what are they talking about that for? Here's what we'd say. There was a way of doing the Jewish religion that looked to acts of the body for confidence. If I cut your flesh, I'll know that you're for real. If you want to know if it's for real, you look to your flesh. That's no good. Instead, what the Bible is asking us to look here to find confidence in, to know that we'll be right before God, is actually through the cross. It's through what Jesus has done on the cross. And so Paul says that he will boast in Jesus Christ alone. We will boast not in what we've done in our bodies or how often we've fulfilled our rosters. We won't look to confidence in that. We'll look to Jesus and what he has done for us. Completed. Sorted. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Whew, few, you say. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. What counts is a new creation, being made new. True Christianity always involves Jesus Christ. It always involves Jesus Christ. Well, if we got this today, if we had a Christianity that was community-minded, that believed in consequences and that was centered on Jesus Christ, what would change? I want to suggest three things would be different. We would be a church marked by restoration. Not that we would want to snack everyone on the hand when they do something wrong. Terrible. No, no, no. How do I help restore you gently so that you might have your, your godly character restored? We would care about one another. Secondly, we will be a church filled with great relationships because we value community, because we care enough to look beyond ourselves. Now, I've got up there our community lunches, and uh, next Sunday we're going to encourage everyone to have someone over for lunch. You can think, I hope someone invites me. Or you can make sure that you have a lunch next week by inviting someone to your place. 
And let me say, if there's no chance in the world you can have someone in the shoebox that you live in and you haven't mowed the lawn and you're distressed about what it might feel like, can I say, come and tap me on the shoulder and say, I don't have anyone to invite me to lunch next week. We'll invite you to lunch. But I want our church community to be shot through with care for one another, to be overflowing with a desire to be this community. And thirdly, I think our church will be filled with people who don't grow weary in doing good because of their harvest-minded service. One day we will reap a reward if we keep going. One day. So if it's tough today, guess what? Keep going. It will be worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the wonderful hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you, Father, that true holiness doesn't involve running away, but living in the midst of a community. Father, help us to be bold enough to care for one another, that we might help one another endure, run to win the prize until that last day. Father, help us not to make light of you. Help us to know that you won't be mocked, that you you will see that we reap what we sow. Father, for those of us who've been reaping, have been sowing, sorry, to our flesh, we ask, Father, that you might forgive us. For those of us who've been sowing to holiness, I pray, Father, that we might, in the Spirit, continue to do that. And I pray too, Father, that we might boast in Jesus, in whom our great confidence is found. We ask these things in his name. Amen.